It is very possible that I am the unbaptized pastor of a Baptist church. Now, that's not as scandalous as it may sound. I grew up in Southern Baptist churches in the Deep South where the gospel was preached and decisions were urged in first grade, roundabout. Uh, I knew I didn't want to go to hell, and I believed in hell, and I believed that Jesus died for my sins. So on a Sunday evening, and definitely it was a Sunday evening service because there were fewer people there, less scary, uh, I walked down the aisle, I shook the preacher's hand, uh, I professed faith in Christ, and the church voted me into membership right then and there. A few weeks later, I was baptized along with other children on a Sunday morning. I was officially saved. Life went on. I never doubted what I'd been taught or professed until high school when I discovered girls and girls discovered me. By the time I went to college, I was ready to walk away from Christianity. And I tried hard. Until like one night, literally one night, the Holy Spirit brought me under a profound and deep sense of conviction of sin. As I said last night, I, I tried to cut a deal with God. God doesn't cut deals. So I did the only thing I knew to do. I, I went and I talked to the only real Christian that I knew on my college campus. He happened to be my RA. He explained the gospel to me. And a few days later, I repented of all the sins that I've been deeply engaged in that first year of college. I submitted to Christ's lordship over my life. Now, interestingly, uh, like, I don't know, a month or two later, I tried to get baptized because uh, I felt like I'd been converted. So I tried to get baptized. But I was attending a Presbyterian church, and they assured me that my earlier baptism counted. Didn't need to worry about the timing. Okay. And so here I stand. Now, if that story were unique to me, I've just, you know, wasted two and a half minutes of your time. But it is not a unique story. I have heard a version of that story countless times as I have done hundreds upon hundreds of membership interviews, both here in Portland and back on the East Coast. Sometimes people decide that they really were converted as a child. And that, that, that early baptism was a real baptism. Sometimes not. But in every one of those cases, the assurance that their baptism was meant to provide is questioned. Questioned in their own mind, maybe questioned in the minds of others. Like baseball players from the steroid era, it's like there's an asterisk next to my name on the, on the rules of faith. So, so here's what we're going to talk about as we talk about conversion in the family. How should we think about the conversion of children? What should it mean for our practice of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership? You know, the only person in, in the New Testament whose age we're told at baptism is Jesus. I don't think he's a model here for us. I don't think we should be waiting until they're 30 to baptize them. On the other hand, quite a few Baptist churches baptize children who aren't old enough yet to pick out their own clothes every day. Presbyterians have a name for that. They call it infant baptism. 
And when I, I was ordained the PCA, we would do infant baptisms right up to about the age of five. As one pastor observed in such a situation, while the theology of the grounds of baptism might remain different between the Baptist who baptizes the four-year-old and the Presbyterian who baptizes as an infant baptism the four-year-old, nevertheless, the place of baptism within the discipleship of that child who may grow up unable to remember their baptism will be practically identical. Now, I want to be really clear. Jesus did not give us a minimum age for conversion and baptism. There is no minimum age. So I'm not going to give you a minimum age. I do think, though, that there are some biblical principles that should guide us as we think about this. I think there are some clear dangers that we need to try to avoid, and there are some implications for our life together in local churches as we think about conversion and children. And I've already warned our Presbyterian brothers here on the front row, they just need to think about this in terms of admission to the table, not baptism, but all of it should be helpful. All right, don't want you to feel left out. Let's start with those biblical principles. I got four, and I'm gonna move through them quickly. Four biblical principles that we need to really keep in mind that should guide us. First, children are capable of conversion. Even very young children, right? John the Baptist was anointed by the Spirit from the womb in Luke 1, 15. Samuel was exceedingly young when the word of the Lord came to him in 1 Samuel 3. God may regenerate whom he will, when he will. Which is why I don't think we can put uh, like a, a minimum age on, on regeneration. We're told Timothy knew the scriptures from a young age in 2 Timothy 3.15. Jonathan Edwards in the first great awakening describes the conversion of Phoebe Bartlett, who was four years old, and he was convinced of her conversion. So first, children are capable of regeneration and conversion. Second, the role of the parents is nurture and admonition. The role of the parents is nurture and admonition. Where do I get that? Uh, for instance, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Other, other translations will say the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, there are two things going on there in terms of what the parents should be doing. On the one hand, there is positive instruction, building them up in the knowledge of the scriptures, in an understanding of the gospel. There's also negative correction, disciplining them, admonishing them in love, just as the father admonishes and disciplines us in love because we are sons and daughters, Hebrews 12, 7. Now, this is, this is true for all parents. This is a responsibility for all parents. On the last day, non-Christian parents will be held accountable for not teaching their children about God. It attaches to the natural relationship. But there's a special obligation upon us as Christian parents. Deuteronomy 6-7 tells us, repeat my words to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, all the time. So we need to be nurturing and admonishing, training and disciplining our children in the things of the faith. But we need to understand that while we nurture and admonish, we cannot convert, nor can we finally assure them of their salvation. The former, conversion, is God's job. The latter, assurance, is the church's job. Which leads to the third 
principle here. The role of the church is to assess and assure. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles. And in Matthew 18, he extends that to the local church. How do we as the local church exercise the keys? Well, we we exercise the keys according to Jesus by assessing whether someone is making a right profession of faith and assessing whether someone is living as a right professor of faith. How do we do that? We do that initially through baptism. As we say to the world, hey world, this person right here, this person is a Jesus follower. You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? We have put our kind of stamp of approval on them by baptizing them. Look at this person. That's how we do it initially in baptism. And then the Lord's Supper, it's like an ongoing reaffirmation. It's like a covenant renewal. The church's role is to affirm publicly or deny publicly the credibility of someone's profession. And that is true for children as well as for adults. Fourth principle, the nature of children is to imitate. The nature of adolescence is to individuate. The nature of children is to imitate. The nature of adolescence is to individuate. God not only created us, he created the developmental process through which we move from infancy to adulthood. There's a reason we say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Children learn much, if not most, of the important things in life through observation and imitation of their parents. From language to values, from habits to worldview, God designed children to absorb and then reflect back what their parents teach and model. It's the nature of childhood. This, frankly, is why, and those of you that are parents know this, This is why parenting works. It's not that you're such a brilliant parent. It's that God designed your children to want to imitate you, to want to learn from you. Parenting is hard, but can you imagine what it would be like if children were developmentally hardwired to resist their parents rather than desire their parents' approval? Aren't we glad, in general, our young children want our approval? It's how we train and teach them. In adolescence, those same children begin to orient away from their parents toward those outside the family. This is called individuation, and everybody goes through it. Adolescents are figuring out, what what am I going to keep from my parents? What am I going to reject from my parents as I figure out how to become an independent adult? This means it is generally, not always, but generally more difficult to discern Christian conversion in a child raised in a Christian home than it is to discern conversion in an adolescent in a Christian home. You see, it takes time for the heart to reveal itself. How do I know when I'm talking to an eight-year-old if I am looking at just a good eight-year-old or a regenerate eight-year-old? They kind of look the same. The one thing I do know for sure is that time will tell. Time will always tell. All right, those are the four principles. We're pressing on. In light of those four principles, we need to be aware that there are dangers on every side as we try to think through this. I've got five of them, five dangers. 
The first is discouragement. When we're considering whether or not to delay baptizing a young child or a a young adolescent, and, and thus delay publicly affirming their profession of faith, we need to take very seriously the possibility of discouraging a young believer. That's especially the case given what I just mentioned, right? Children are designed by God to want the approval of their parents. They'll lose that in adolescence. But while they're children, they want the approval of their parents, and they want the approval, actually, of other authority figures that the parents have brought into their lives, like their pastors. When that approval in the form of baptism and church membership is withheld, we could intentionally, unintentionally, introduce doubt and discouragement in the mind and heart of a young believer. That's a big deal. We need to take that danger seriously. A second danger is disobedience. The command to baptize believers is clear in Matthew 28, 19. It was referred to in one of the earlier talks. We are to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a command, and it's actually one of the easiest commands Jesus makes because all you have to do is lay back, right? Um, It's not a hard command. But here's the thing. In general, I don't want to say always, but in general, the omission of a duty is just as much a sin as the commission of an offense. So being prevented from obeying Jesus in baptism could be understood as kind of forcing a a young believer to sin because we're preventing them from obeying Jesus' command. Equally, the church and its leaders could be in sin for withholding baptism from someone who already has the Spirit. And of course, that's what baptism is. Baptism is a visible sign of an invisible reality. Peter asks, how can we withhold baptism from these since the Spirit's already fallen on them in Cornelius' household? And Jesus has really stern words for such people who lead little ones into sin. And Luke 17, he says to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So there's the danger of disobedience here, and we must not make light of it. But there are also dangers coming from other sides. There are dangers for the church itself. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership go together. We've we've talked about this now several times. When someone is initiated into the fellowship of the church through baptism, they're not only admitted to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, they also now share with the church gathered in the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. That means participating in decisions regarding membership, church discipline, doctrine, leadership. It doesn't take long to realize that a 12-year-old is probably not competent to judge their friend's parents' divorce and the church discipline that's going to follow. It it doesn't take long to realize that that 12-year-old is probably, we're probably not doing him any favors by asking him to be a part of evaluating whether or not his friend's father is qualified to be an elder in the church. 
When we bring in young children as members, and this is what we should be doing through baptism, when we baptize someone, we don't baptize them into the invisible church out there and they just float. No, we bring them into the fellowship of God's people in the local church. We admit them to the table. We ask them to exercise the keys of the kingdom with us. Boy, when we do that, I'll tell you what happens without fail. Either formally, which is what this church did for a while, or functionally, we will create a two-tiered membership. And that's really the danger I have in view here, a two-tiered membership in which there are different classes of members, some with more authority, some with less, some with more responsibility, some with less. And you know what happens when you create a two-tiered membership? You undermine the meaningfulness of membership. That's a real danger. Here's a fourth danger, again, for, for the church and the families the danger of divided authority. Children are commanded to obey their parents. Children are commanded in Scripture to submit to their parents' authority. You see that in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, among other places. Church membership introduces a new authority into their lives. Church membership introduces the authority of the elders. It introduces the authority of the gathered church as a whole in their lives. Matthew 18, Hebrews 13. Now, here's the thing. you got two authorities, parental authority, church authority. Neither parents nor church can abdicate their authority by delegating it to somebody else. I'll just challenge you to show me chapter and verse where the church is allowed to delegate its authority to somebody else, or parents are allowed to delegate this kind of authority to, to someone else. No, nobody else can be the parent of my kids but, but me. You might have some good ideas for them. You have no authority in their lives. I'm dad. You're not, right? I mean, I just can't delegate it. But so it is with the church. Now, that's not an issue when we're dealing with an independent adult. And it's much less of an issue when we're dealing with an older adolescent. But I ask you, which authority is best suited and designed by God to operate in a child's life? or a younger adolescent's life. What happens when your 12-year-old comes home high on weed, not once, not twice, but every weekend? Uh, What should happen is you're involved in his life or her life as parents because you are the place where love and authority come together best. There's the most trust. There's the most capital that can be spent. But if that 12-year-old is a baptized member of the church, the church is going to have to step in. And, and is he really or she really ready to understand that they're acting in love? When, when the church didn't put a roof over their head for the first 12 years of their life, the church didn't feed them every morning, noon, and night. There's real danger in bringing a child out from under their parents' sole authority too early. And there's danger to both the parents and the church that that their authority, each of their authority in the rightful sphere is going to be sidelined or undermined by the other's authority. The fifth danger I just want to highlight is the danger of false assurance and presumption. False assurance encourages the sin of presumption. 
What is presumption? Presumption is when a person assumes that she's right with God when she's not right with God. Now, lots of things can lead to presumption. False teaching, legalism, self-righteousness. But so can baptism when it's wrongly applied. When the church assures someone of salvation through baptism, when they're not saved, it's, it really is like we're giving them a vaccine against the gospel. I think Thomas mentioned that earlier. You know how vaccines work? A defective agent is introduced in the body, your body recognizes it, so that when the real danger shows up, the body can fight it off. When we give people false assurance, we have vaccinated them against the gospel. Because when the, we, when the real gospel shows up, when real conviction of sin shows up, now they're thinking, well, no, 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 I'm already saved. I don't, I don't need to respond to that. Now, the, that risk is always present. Every time we baptize somebody, we could be making a mistake. But given everything I've already said before, that risk is heightened with children. All right. So I've got three implications then. Four principles, five dangers, three implications. We should be quick to encourage and slow to assure. Quick to encourage, slow to assure. What do I mean by that? I mean, we should celebrate and encourage every sign of faith in our children. Every time little Johnny or little Sally, or not so little Johnny or not so little Sally, shows some interest in following Jesus, man, that is cause for celebration. That is cause for encouragement. We, we should tell them how pleased we are. We, 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 should, we should be willing to, to uh, kind, of, kind of build that up. But then, rather than quickly assuring them that they're a Christian, no, we should just continue to explain to them that a Christian isn't someone who prayed a prayer. A Christian is someone who repents and believes and continues to do so. We should teach our children, as they show an interest in the faith, we should teach our children to grow in, in, in the grace of evangelism. Teach, teach your kids to share the gospel at school. We, we, should, we should teach them to grow in the grace of service. We, we should be teaching our children to love their neighbor. We should encourage them to serve the church. In all of this, you understand what we're doing is we're giving them a positive vision as they prepare for the responsibilities of baptism and membership that they will take on someday. We don't want to be people, be people that just say, no, no, you can't join. No, you can't be baptized. You've got to wait. No, we want to be celebrating and encouraging, giving them this vision of here's how you grow for the day that you're ready to be baptized. Here's how you can be giving yourself so that, that when the day comes that it's time for you to take on these responsibilities, you, you're ready for them. So we want to encourage them. But we should be slow to publicly certify their salvation through baptism. We should be slow to assure them of salvation through membership and admission to the table. How slow? I don't know. It's kind of a case-by-case -case basis, isn't it? But here's, here's what I want. I want them to see 
And I want the whole church to be able to see. And I want the watching world to be able to see their clear and tested evidences of grace as they count the cost of what's, what it means to follow Jesus, as they say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil in order to follow Jesus. And here's the thing, with a, with a child or adolescent, that takes time. Again, given all those principles I gave you earlier, that takes time. And I think we should allow them that time rather than rush them because of our own fears and anxieties. And if you don't have fears and anxieties about your kids, then I kind of wonder if you have a pulse, right? This is what parents feel about their kids. When I look back at my own baptism, I take very little, sadly, I take very little direct encouragement from it. I decided not to be baptized as an adult. I decided that, honestly, I just couldn't remember enough to now pass judgment on it as an adult. And I'm left, frankly, simply having to trust that the adults around me at the time knew what they were doing. How different the experience of my own children. I've got five kids. All of them made a profession of faith around the age of five years old. They never did this with me. They always did it with mom because she's not scary. Um, but for all of them, we, we delayed baptism. Now, just to pick one example, my son, Christian, he's my second child. Man, he is the one kid of all my kids that I actually probably would have baptized at age 12, despite everything I've just told you. And he's a compliant, kind child could explain the gospel clearly, not a hint of rebellion until he was 15. And all of that changed. His high school years were marked by profound immorality and rebellion, as he would tell you if he could stand here. But praise be to God, his freshman year in college, the Lord changed his life. And he was baptized a few months later right behind me. Now, when did my son become a Christian? Was it age five? Or was it age 19? I don't know that I know. I don't know for sure that he knows. Because Christians, of course, can fall into prolonged and serious bouts of sin, grievous sin, before the Lord brings them back. Yeah, I don't know. But when could the church tell for sure that he'd become a Christian and be able to say to the world, hey world, this guy, this guy is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're putting the team jersey on him. And it's really clear he's following Jesus now. And his baptism at age 19 marks that out for him in a way that gives him extraordinary encouragement and assurance, in a way that I don't have when I look back at my baptism. So that's the first implication. We should be quick to encourage, slow to assure. Second implication, context matters. Context matters a lot. 
adolescents in particular demonstrate independence and maturity and responsibility at different times and in different ways. So here's the thing. It is easier for the church to observe a teenager counting the cost to follow Jesus in a public high school setting than it is in a Christian homeschool setting. That's not the kid's fault. It's just the fact of the matter. Context matters. Context help, helps to make contrasts clear. A 16-year-old single teenage mom from a non-Christian background who converts is, I think, a more likely candidate for baptism than the same aged homeschooled elder son who quietly professes faith while living at home. The issue is not whether or not both are saved. The issue is, can we tell? Because see, baptism is not just a private thing. It's a church thing. That, that leads me to my third implication. Our view of membership is too low. It is too low. Baptism is not a private moment between you and Jesus. Any more than the Lord's Supper is a private meal between you and Jesus. Baptism, like the Lord's Supper, is an ordinance of the church, the church corporate. It not only declares your allegiance and trust in Christ, it proclaims the church's affirmation of your profession and initiates you into the fellowship of the church. The ordinances are corporate, not private, not individual. There are three parties to every baptism. The person being baptized, the Lord, and the local church. So parents and church alike, the question we need to ask is not, is this child ready to be baptized? But is this person ready to take on the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of church membership, which baptism initiates them into? Are, are they competent to take on the covenant obligations of the people of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters in this life? I find, this, I find 1 Corinthians 6 very instructive as we think about membership, right? There are many, many obligations and responsibilities that we don't entrust to children. And, and they're good things. They're really good things. They're things that we want our children to aspire to. Things like marriage or a full-time job or voting. And here's the thing, according to Paul, all of those are lesser responsibilities than the responsibility of church membership and the exercise of the keys of the kingdom that that brings. If someone's not mature enough for the keys to the family car, why are we so confident they're mature enough to share in the keys of the kingdom of God? Now, you understand that has nothing to do with whether or not they're saved. God can regenerate whom he will, when he will. And we are not Roman Catholic. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Baptism is a public affirmation that the church makes and places on an individual to say, 
this, this one, is a follower of Jesus. And you can hold him and you can hold us accountable to that. Recently, we had the opportunity to baptize quite a few of our young adults who grew up in this church. This last, this last year, we've baptized, I don't know, half a dozen, eight young adults who grew up in the church. After one of those baptisms, one of the moms approached me. A decade ago, she had not been too thrilled at my reluctance to baptize children, particularly younger children, like her children. And more to the point, she'd gotten a lot of grief from the grandparents over this. But she came up to me to say thank you. You see, the intervening years had demonstrated that had, had it been up to her and her husband, they would have baptized the wrong kids. Just like I would have baptized my kid when he wasn't, in fact, I think a Christian, certainly not giving evidence of it. Just as important, though, this mom could see how significant the baptism of her child that day really was. Not just to her as a mom, but to her now adult child. Conversion is God's work. Time will always tell. Perhaps one of the best things we can do for our kids is to put our fears aside and give them the time that they need.